If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The problem of defending England hinged, as we'll see, on the Navy, but it also hinged on the Elizabethan militia. The Elizabethan militia makes Dad's army look like a finely honed war machine. That was Robert Hutchinson talking about the Spanish Armada at BBC History magazine's recent Tudor's Day. It's clearly of a different order altogether to the other Iron Age houses, which are you know, really uh, quite, quite modest and small. And that was Michael Fulford from the University of Reading talking about an Iron Age mansion discovered in a dig at Silchester. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Matt Elton and I'm books editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. Our new look August issue is out now, featuring new sections, a fresh design and writing from some of Britain's leading experts on subjects including Roman Britain, the downfall of Mary, Queen of Scots and U-boat hunting in the Second World War. You can find the issue in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com slash subscribe for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com slash digital. The Spanish Armada's attempt to land on the Kent coast in 1588 is one of the most famous episodes in British history. However, as historian Robert Hutchinson argues in a lecture recorded at BBC History magazine's recent Tudor's Day, we may need to reconsider what we think we know about the event. One of the problems one has in writing books is, of course, they never turn out the way you expect them to. 
And uh, my book on the Spanish Armada, which had just been published, uh, didn't turn out the way I intended. Uh, I suppose the way to describe it quickly is uh, imagine uh, master and commander meets carry-on up the Vatican <laughs> meets dad's army. And uh, one of the problems we have, of course, with the Tudor period is that the Tudors invented propaganda. It may have been the size of Henry VIII's copies. It may be much more subtle, as it was practiced later on in the reign of Elizabeth I. But our perceptions, still taught in our schools, a few schools which still teach history, um, leave us with impressions which are need to be revisited. I mean, first of all, you know, we have the Armada, the plucky little ships defeating the mighty Spanish Armada. Rubbish. Actually, both sides were, in military terms, fairly well matched. But, of course, the English didn't defeat the Spanish Armada. Uh, lots, of, lots of other factors did. Stupidity on the part of the Spanish, complete stupidity, poor organisation, bad luck, but most of all, the weather. The weather. We'll come on to that later on. Uh, the English ships failed to land any kind of killer blow as they harried the Spanish Armada up the uh, English Channel. Why? Because uh, Elizabeth, with her depleted exchequer and her natural parsimony, didn't send them any gunpowder <laughs> or any, any shot. So they were continually harried by, by that. And uh, in fact, the Spanish, even after the Battle of uh, Gravelins, had only lost six ships, and two of those were by accident, their own fault. Um, so they, they were still, although they were very badly battered, they still were a coherent fighting force. And of course, we also talked about the Great Patriotic War, the defense of the Protestant bulwark against Catholic Europe. And of course, 30, 40% of Elizabeth's uh, subjects were still Catholic. And uh, her ministers, and indeed the Spanish, expected them to rise in support of the evaders after a landing. Many had been interned as a security measure. The Tudors invented internment camps. Uh, the loyalty of, in, of the inhabitants of, of Kent was uncertain. The spies, Elizabeth's spies, reported that some of those Kentish people rejoiced when any report was made of the Spaniards' good success and sorrowed for the contrary whilst others declared the Spanish were better than the people of this land. And, of course, the garrison of Dover Castle, who, having a whiff of the Armada across the English Straits in, in, in Calais, deserted to a man. Somebody else's fight. We're not going to get killed for this. <laughs> Some, like a group of, dare I say, Bristol merchants, were caught supplying the Armada with military supplies in 1587. Um, and on board the Armada were lots of English and Irish exiles who were only too pleased to help depose Elizabeth and restore England to Catholicism. So, of course, the, it is a Tudor story. The Armada, the roots of the Armada campaign go all the way back to that old ogre, Henry VIII. And uh, his... Uh, taking England out of the Catholic Church in his desperate search for a male heir to uh, safeguard the insecure Tudor dynasty. Uh, he still, of course, managed to continue to hang on to the title Defender of the Faith, which we still have on the back of our coins today.
Uh, his dysfunctional family uh, yielded three more silver uh, Tudor sovereigns, the precocious, rather priggish Edward VI, <laughs> Uh, under whose government uh, Protestantism swept away anything Catholic uh, from our churches and cathedrals. Mary, of course, who promptly returned uh, England to the authority of Rome. And finally, there was uh, Elizabeth, the only child of Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn. And uh, Mary hated her half-sister with a black sibling passion. And she feared her as a younger rival waiting to wear the crown of England when she died or uh, was deposed. And of course, here we have England, now Catholic country again. And Elizabeth merely paid, uh, paid lip service to the return of that old religion. Uh, in September 1553, the Feast of the Nativity of the Virgin Mary, Elizabeth heard her first Catholic mass, but attended such services rather erratically afterwards. The Spanish ambassador sniffily reported uh, that Elizabeth complained loudly all the way to church and that her stomach ached. And uh, during the liturgy, she wore a suffering air. Uh, but worse was to come. Elizabeth was imprisoned at the Tower of London over suspicions of her involvement in Wyatt's abortive rebellion in 1554 against plans for Mary's rather joyless marriage uh, to Philip of Spain, and when she was eventually released and she spent the remainder of Mary's reign under close, uh, close house uh, arrest. And uh, Mary died childless uh, in St. James's Palace about seven o'clock in the morning of uh, the 17th of November in 1558 in agony from the uterine cancer with the ovarian cysts uh, that she was suffering from. Elizabeth, now aged 25, heard of her accession about noon at Hatfield House, 20 miles north of London. She fell to her knees and after a good time of respiration, recited a verse from Psalm 118 in Latin. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. You know, one of the things about the Tudors is they're always great on sound bites. <laughs> I bet you she's been rehearsing that <laughs> for hours, if not days beforehand, because she knew her half-sister was dying. And we had Henry VII this morning, lands in Wales, and he's got a quote for the occasion, hasn't he? It's a good job ITN went around then. <clears throat> so Elizabeth is, is crowned uh, is queen, but that old Tudor curse about who's going to succeed them was still very much in the minds of her government and parliament. And, uh, but the Queen rejected uh, any talk about uh, uh, marriage at this stage. Her brother-in-law, Philip of Spain, not the most romantic of all people, uh, after hearing of Mary's death, his wife's death, uh, noted, I felt a reasonable regret uh, and was more worried about his uh, garter insignia and regalia, which was still in Whitehall Palace, which he wanted to reclaim because it was actually quite valuable. Uh, but he felt uh, the need to throw his feathered cap into the ring as a suitor for his uh, half-sister-in-law's hand in marriage. Um, and uh, he wouldn't be an eager, blushing, would-be bridegroom, though. Uh, he told his uh, ambassador that he felt like a condemned man waiting his fate. And he was probably relieved when Elizabeth uh, rejected his suit 
um, after discovering an important impediment to their marriage. Uh, the line from Leviticus, which proclaimed, if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing, they shall be childless. Brother, sister, it doesn't make any difference. It's the same meaning. And of course, she must have quoted this with a big smile on her face because it's ironically the same text quoted by her father, uh, Henry, as grounds for the annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. How she must have laughed. <laughs> on the uh, evening of Sunday the 16th of, of May 60, uh, 1568, uh, Elizabeth's personal nemesis entered her uncertain realm, her Catholic cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, who had fled Scotland and landed in Cumbria to seek uh, shelter and assistance uh, from England to regain her crown, her Scottish crown. Sadly, of course, we know, and she was very public about this, she had her own designs on the English throne through her direct descent from Henry VIII's eldest sister, Margaret, one time uh, Queen of Scotland. As many of Elizabeth's subjects believed her claim was stronger than hers, uh, Mary was to spend the next 18 years, not a guest of honour, but a uh, prisoner incarcerated in a succession of five-star uh, prisons uh, in the English North and Midlands. And such caution was entirely justified. <clears throat> in early uh, November the following year, the Catholic earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland uh, rose in revolt, seeking to free Mary and uh, return England to the Catholic faith. And Elizabeth put the rebellion down with typical Tudor brutality. She urged her generals for more executions. And indeed, there were some areas of the northeast uh, uh, whose economy didn't recover for 200 years after they'd been laid waste by the royal troops. The following year, Pope Pius the, uh, V excommunicated her and forbade her Catholic subjects from obeying her and her laws uh, under threat of anathema. And as far as her government was concerned, uh, every Catholic in England was now a potential assassin. Uh, of the monarch. Something about the 16th century popes. Uh, if the Tudors were cursed with insecurity, the popes were cursed with stupidity. They just did not know how to handle the Tudors. They were either did too little or they did too much and they always got the timing wrong. And uh, Pius V was no exception. The advent of seminary priests being smuggled into England to comfort the English Catholics and keep that fame of faith still burning sparked a large-scale internal security uh, operation masterminded by uh, Sir Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's Secretary of State and spymaster. At one stage, he dreamt up a, a daring scheme to set up a colony in Florida for English recusants believing that the dangers of the voyage across the Atlantic, attacks from the Spanish or Native Americans or disease and famine would neutralize their threat very quickly. Better have them in America than fermenting trouble uh, if exiled in Catholic Europe. Sadly, the plan didn't work, even though Elizabeth um, generously granted 12 million acres in Florida somebody else's land, I should say. It was actually Spanish land. Uh, but the, the reconnaissance uh, mission, which was sent out, uh, missed Florida and landed up in Newfoundland by mistake. Uh, and uh, they lost a couple of ships and indeed the commander on the way back. So 
we have uh, the Spanish Armada. Now, lots of people are taught in schools the Spanish Armada was launched because of the death of Mary Queen of Scots. Not true. It's been, been planned for two years before then, and it's really all about Spanish reaction to Elizabeth's support for the Protestant rebels in the Spanish Low Countries. Elizabeth thought, felt, quite understandably, if you're going to have to fight the Spanish, it's better to fight them on somebody else's territory rather than on English soil. So the war against Spain was being fought on the European mainland rather than, than uh, on English soil. And that obviously was something which Philip felt he needed to stop. He was also uh, finding Drake's continued attacks on the bullion ships uh, and Spanish settlements in the Americas were becoming a little bit more than tiresome uh, because the uh, Spanish Empire was costing more and more and he did need that bullion. So that's why he launched the Spanish Armada in 1550, uh, 1585. And despite his protestations that he was acting uh, in the best interests of the papacy, he also believed he had a strong claim to the English throne uh, from his descent from the House of Lancaster. But his major problem... Uh, was money with which to finance the Armada. Walsingham was waging economic warfare against it, preventing those Italian uh, bankers in, in, in North Italy from granting him loans or letters of credit. Um, so he was forced, much against uh, his better judgment, to go to um, the Pope, the new Pope, Sixtus V, uh, who cared more for gold uh, ducats and devotion, according to the Spanish ambas uh, ambassador, uh, to, to, to subsidize uh, the invasion with a million gold ducats. Now, in today's spending power, a million gold duc ducats is 662 million pounds. It was agreed reluctantly by Sixtus V, who was more interested in um, rebuilding the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Rome than financing uh, an invasion of England. He thought Spanish troops should be much better employed doing that than, uh, than fighting Elizabeth. And indeed, he was a huge admirer of Elizabeth. Rather to his cardinal's embarrassment, uh, he frequently um, made speeches of praise uh, about Elizabeth, saying what a wonderful queen she was. He was plainly infatuated by her. And his cardinals found this very difficult. Uh, listening. Um, hence the Vatican bit. Carry on up the Vatican. Um, but he was not a, no man's fool. Sextus V stipulated that uh, not only should uh, uh, Philip be able to bestow the crown of England on anybody he chose, providing that the new monarch pledged that the defeated realm would come back to the Catholic Church, uh, and the church's properties and rights alienated by Henry VIII would be restored, uh, Sextus stipulated that not one penny would be paid until the first Spanish soldier set his foot on English soil. And they never did. And he never paid up a single penny. So after uh, years of Elizabeth's parsimony, uh, England's defences were pretty decayed. There was one uh, bulwark, one fort in Sussex, which hadn't been repaired during the 43 years since he'd been uh, damaged by the French uh, in a raid during her uh, father's time. And aside from small forces in the Scottish border and at Dover, there were no, there's no standing army. 
She did have 324,000 men, potentially, to serve in an army, um, but they were untrained and they had no weapons. Many of them would have been Catholic or Catholic sympathisers. And with uh, the problem of defending England hinged, as we'll see, on the navy, but it also hinged on the Elizabethan militia. And the Elizabethan militia makes Dad's army look like a finely honed war machine. <laughs> they had no weapons, they had no armour, they had no guns, or very few guns, no gunpowder, uh, and uh, they had no sense of military discipline. They wouldn't go and defend the Isle of Wight because it would mean leaving their homes in Portsmouth uh, open to attack by the Spanish. We'd much rather defend uh, our own homes than somebody else's. Uh, the commander of the Dorset militia believed his men were more likely to fight each other uh, than the Spanish armor and Spanish invaders. And with such a long shoreline to defend, hasty methods had to be deployed to try and delay an, an enemy force before larger English concentration of forces could be brought to bear on them. They dug trenches on likely invasion beaches, so many of them, and sharpened stakes were rammed into the sand and shingle. And the poor local militia were going to help each other delay those Spanish coming in, try and reach London, until more trained armies could be mustered. Um, there was frantic building of, uh, of defences. Even as the Armada sailed up the Channel, the Earl of Leicester was calling for more labourers and more wheelbarrows uh, to try and finish Tilbury Fort. Uh, new earth walls were con uh, constructed in Portsmouth uh, in just four months by 100 labourers. But the garrison, half the garrison, were rated by age and impotency in no way serviceable. And the town's commander, the Earl of Sussex, happily escaped unhurt when an old iron gun uh, exploded into smithereens. It was supposed to be one of his best guns. Um, and then things started coming to a head. By mid-July 1588, Walsham had received new intelligence that suggested wrongly that Spain's forces uh, planned a small coordinated attack on London. And so they based their 12,000 main force uh, around Tilbury under Leicester and a second larger army under the Queen's cousin, Lord Hunston, uh, 40,000 strong, uh, was to muster in London to protect the sacred person of the Queen herself. And they knew that uh, if the Spanish did land in the Thames estuary, the Thames would be route one into the capital. So they laid these booms of chains and ship's masts across the, uh, the fairway, uh, but the first flood tide broke the barrier. Uh, so that didn't work. <laughs> so Elizabeth knew that her, her main uh, defence was to keep the Spanish at sea, and that was her navy. And that was actually in quite good shape. Although four ships dated from the period of the reign of Henry VIII, 11 had been built since 1584 and had been refitted to modern standards. And these were built to this new design called race-built ships, much lower superstructures uh, with more guns, a bigger gun deck. They were much more maneuverable, they were much more sleek and speedy than those lumbering Spanish galleons. And that was a major force, a major factor in the Spanish Armada campaign. Now, my book actually lists every ship which took part in the campaign. I don't think anybody's ever done that before. I can see why. <laughs>
There were five ships called Mary Rose. <laughs> Six ships called Minion. Which one are we talking about here? It was a nightmare. But uh, I do list the order of the battle of both uh, navies. Uh, and the English ones, of course, uh, the 38 ships of the English uh, navy included some famous names, which we're familiar with today. Ark Royal, now about to be scrapped. Uh, Triumph, Victory, Vanguard, Revenge, Dreadnought, Swiftshore. Famous names in, uh, in uh, naval annuals. But these wouldn't be enough to stop the Armada. So uh, a uh, fleet of armed merchantmen were hired uh, to boost numbers. And of course, the Royal Navy does that today, as they did in the Falklands. They have this system called stuffed ships. S-T-U-F-T, ships taken up from trade. And uh, today, as in uh, the Tudor times, as soon as you finish with them, you get rid of them. You don't want to keep paying those wet leases for the ship and the crews. Um, but again, a lack of uh, patriotism, I suppose, caused major problems in mustering the fleet. Sir John Gilbert refused permission for his ships to join Drake's Western Squadron and allowed them to sail on their planned voyage in defiance of, of naval orders. Now, uh, Medina Sedona, the admiral, the captain general of the Spanish fleet, replaced uh, um, the original commander, Santa Cruz, in February 1588 when... Santa Cruz died of ship's fever, typhus. Curious choice by Philip II. Um, he'd never been to sea. <laughs> uh, his skills lay more in organisation uh, than naval warfare, and he was reluctant to take up uh, the post. He, writing to Philip, Sir, I have not health for sea, for I know by the small experience that I've had afloat that I soon become seasick. Uh, since I have no experience either of the sea or of war, I cannot feel that I ought to command so important an enterprise. But Philip had dismissed these objections as much natural, natural modesty, and he was landed with it. And, and he must have regretted it bitterly, because almost immediately things started going wrong. Um, he uh, departed Lisbon and found that the transports were travelling much slower than he, than he had planned, of course, and any convoy has to travel at the same speed as the lowest ship, as, as the slowest ship. Hit by uh, terrible storms, uh, he loses his uh, oared galleys, which should never be there in the first place because they're much more uh, tuned to the Mediterranean warfare than they are in the North Atlantic. Some of his, uh, some of his ships end up being blown as far as Land's End. A little bit premature, really, because the rest of them were still in Corona. Uh, so gathering it together was a real problem. Um, but the, the, major, the major problem was, uh, the great weakness was this meeting up between the Armada and the 20,000 men under the Duke of Parma who was going to find this amphibious force. And they were going to land near Margate, not in the Thames Estuary. It was flat-bottomed boats, jam-packed, with Spanish troops. They were going to stand shoulder to shoulder. They needed a flat calm, and they needed no sign of the English Navy. And that's what the Yamada was there for, to protect that force from the English Navy. But they never met up. By the time the Armada, after those days, of, six days of, uh, of fighting in the Channel, by the time the Armada got to Calais, they hadn't even started to embark 
the barges. So though they were sitting ducks outside Calais, and of course the English put in the fire ships, but failed to capitalise on the panic it's caused in the Armada, being distracted by the plunder of a beached galleas, San Lorenzo, which was stranded at the mouth of, uh, of Calais Harbour. The, 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 um, the Armada escaped because the English were too busy clambering on board this galleas to see what gold they could lay their hands on. And indeed, you know, we hear about uh, Drake being the great hero of the Armada, the vice-admiral of the, of the English force. He too was more interested in plunder as well. He certainly acted the part of a pirate rather than a naval commander. So here we have the, uh, the Armada scattered. Uh, and the next day, Sedona, Medina Sedona, and a couple of his larger ships fought a very brave action to hold off the English navy while the rest of the Armada could be gathered together again. And that resulted in the Battle of, of Gravelines. And uh, that's when the Spanish ships started taking really severe battle damage. Although Drake fired a couple of uh, rounds and then pooted off for other, other reasons. The other problem the, the, uh, the Armada were in, they were caught in a trap uh, because just north of them were the Flanders sandbags and the Dutch had removed all the navigational marks. And they could hear the crash of surf on the shingle of these uh, shoals off the coast of France. They knew they would be wrecked and they would have no hope of survival. Um, but amazingly, for the first time, the weather did them a favour. And at the very last second, it veered round. The wind veered round and the, the Narmada were taken out to sea. So, despite uh, Elizabeth's perennial meanness, or because of that rather, her ships had no munitions left when the, the Armada escaped. Her sailors were unpaid and dying from disease. The English chased them into Scottish waters, and when they were convinced that they weren't coming back, scurried home to try and find some food and some pure water and medical attention for the wounded and sick. But as I said right at my start, uh, it was climate change. It was bad luck. Uh, it was bad tactical mistakes which destroyed the great and most fortunate navy. The weather cycle in 1558 was the worst in one which really began in the, last, in the fourth century, in the Roman period. Unsettled summers and, and tempestuous autumns. And uh, those storms destroyed much of the Armada on the west coast of, of Ireland. In my book, there's actually a map of Northern Ireland done in 1589, which you wouldn't recognise it as Northern Ireland, I have to say. But, but it was found uh, in the archives of the Marcus of Salisbury underneath Hatfield House. And it marks the Spanish wrecks. And there's three we didn't know about. So evidence recovered from those wrecks indicated the Spanish had never fired their main armament. And that's because they were land artillery guns. And they, had, they were diagonally placed on the decks uh, with long trails, like you would see in modern artillery. The people who fired them were soldiers who were normally positioned at the top of the mast to fire at uh, the enemy. So every time you fire, you had to call them down. So they would climb down the, down the masts, roll back the gun, 
and load it. There wasn't enough room to roll them back. If you wanted to reload the guns, you actually had to clamber outside the ship, sit astride the gun, and ram. There weren't many volunteers to do that in the middle of a battle. <laughs> and that is why the Spanish never fired their main armament. So Philip complained that he sent uh, his fleet against men and not against uh, the wind and waves. But uh, it probably the government's first, the first ever government health warning ever published in England. Pamphlets assured the population that it was still safe to eat fish, even though they had fed on the corpses of Spanish sailors infected with venereal disease. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was author and broadcaster Robert Hutchinson. Robert's latest book, The Spanish Armada, is out now and published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Before our next interview, I'd like to mention that extra tickets are now on sale for our History Weekend Festival, taking place in the historic Wiltshire town of Malmesbury from the 25th to the 27th of October. We've seen huge demand for tickets and we're delighted to announce that some of the weekend's events will now take place in a larger venue, the beautiful Malmesbury Abbey. This means that we can now offer for sale tickets for some of the events that were previously sold out. For full details and ticket information, please visit historyweekend.com. And now we have a short advert. History has always had the best stories. Now it has the best storyteller in Robin Young, author of The Brethren and Insurrection Trilogies. To go about writing a battle scene, you have to look at it from all angles. You have to study the battle scene from both sides, because as they say, history is written by the victors. Before I started writing Insurrection, I sat down and spoke to a former SAS commander 
about what it really was like to be in war, what it was like to fight for your life. Renegade is the new novel from Robin Young, a dazzling story of conspiracy and divided loyalties and a superb portrait of the medieval world. Renegade by Robin Young is out now. A team of archaeologists from the University of Reading is learning more about what life may have been like for upper-class people in ancient Britain thanks to the recent discovery of a huge Iron Age building in Silchester in Hampshire. The project's director, Michael Fulford, took time out from the excavation to tell me more about the findings. The first question really is um, how you first got involved in the Silchester project. Oh, well, that, that goes back rather a long way. Um, when I was... Um I'd just been appointed to a lecturer here at the University of Reading, and out of the blue came a letter from um, what was the predecessor body to English Heritage, saying, would I be interested in doing a small excavation on the town wall at Silchester? And um, being, you know, young and energetic, I said, yeah, I'm up for this. And that was um, uh, just about 40 years ago. And um, so things moved on from there, from strength to strength, till now we have this fab- fantastic Town Life Project, which is um, now in its 17th summer. It's coming to an end, but it's produced the most wonderful story of, of, of life changing through the whole of what we think of as the history of, of Kaleva from Iron Age through to abandonment after the Roman uh, period. Um, talking about this specific, I suppose, um, mansion, how important a find in the project was it? Oh, well, I mean, one of the objectives of this this long-running project was to reach the Iron Age and to get a sort of clear understanding of what Kaleva was like then, because, you know, we, we had no idea really previously. We knew it's there from from some work done in the 1980s, but um, this has given us a, a big a big area, and in that area has emerged this 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 big building. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, mansion's one way of calling it. I sort of see of it see it as a hall, a big sort of, you know, uh, along the lines of going a bit later, Anglo-Saxon, you know, the hall of Beowulf and all of that. But um, uh, so it's a substantial building. So it's it's giving us a, a very clear indication of uh, high status living in the town in, in, in the years when it's taking off at the end of the first century BC. So that's all very exciting. And it, it's clearly of a different order altogether to the other Iron Age houses, which are, you know, really quite, quite modest and small. So, so we're talking about somebody of significant wealth in the um, Atrobatic community. Mm. Do we get a sense of what um, the building would have looked like when it stood? Um, well, it's always difficult because you've what you've got in, in archaeology are essentially foundations. So we've got a construction trench for the outer walls of the building, and we've got a row of, of post holes for um, the support of of the of the roof. So, so you know, it seems like a simple structure. Maybe it's it's plank built. Um, given the size of the construction trenches, but that's another feature of it that it's the first Iron Age building and, and a building of scale that's that's delivered this this very visible, clear evidence. Um, so you're taking those parameters, taking the posts. You know, we've, we think it's about eight meters high. Um, we assume, it, I mean, it could be a shingle, wooden shingle roof, but we assume a thatch roof. So a timber construction, um, uh, material almost certainly oak, oak-built um, 
uh, building. What went on inside it is still enigmatic. I mean, we haven't finished digging. That's the other exciting thing. I mean, this this season, um, you know, we're, we, we've just started. This is week one. And um, I think we're going to find much more uh, evidence to maybe get the complete plan of the building this summer. That would be fantastic. That's amazing, yeah. So it's, it really does stand out as something different, different within what we see of Kaleva within this area that we've got open, but also different in terms of other Iron Age houses in, in, at this time in Britain. And what sense uh, do we get, or well, first of all, I suppose, what artefacts have been found in and around the site of the mansion? Yes, well, it's, it appears at a time when um, there are imports coming into Kaleva from the Mediterranean, so we've got uh, fragments of, of, of amphora of wine jars, um, so bringing uh, wines from Italy, uh, but also from northeastern Spain. Um, we've got the tablewares that go with it, um, this fine red, glossy, um, generally called sort of aretine, um, sigillata is, is one word for it, samian is another. Um, so it's the, high, the fine china, if you like, of the period that's coming in. So um, indications of you know, feasting and drinking, um, and uh, there's a little bit of, 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 of early fine glass, bowls and cups, but these are very fragmented. I mean, all, all this evidence is, I mean, if we were digging, or if we'd found an Iron Age burial, um, of the sort that you find in um, southeast Britain in the first century, we'd have complete vessels, you know, silver cups, amphorae, wine, tablewares, and so on. But here, as occupation debris, not surprisingly, it's all, it's all broken, broken up. We've yet to analyze um, the animal bones. We've done some work. Um, Lisa Lodwick at, at Oxford has done some work on the plant remains of this period, and that's one of the exciting things, is that we can see um, that they're choosing to bring in, um, on the one hand, exotic fruits like olives. And so that's the first olive record we have from Britain and the earliest. And on the other, that they're kind of adapting to uh, Roman or Mediterranean cuisine. So we've got coriander, dill, celery. All these are present in contexts which are earlier than the Roman conquest of AD 43. So that's that's that's, 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 that's that, again a, a dimension and a depth, uh, but we don't have everything that one associates with uh, Rome at this time. We don't, and for example, they don't seem to be interested in some of the uh, very distinctive uh, what we call mortaria, um, these um, very heavy white ceramic mixing bowls you know, with grits in the base that, that uh, you, you'll see in many museums as a distinctive feature of, of Roman culture. So there's things which they don't want, but they, they like the food and the how, how it's prepared, how it's delivered, and, and they like the idea of dining. So platters, plates, and you know, it's beginning to assume um, society there, certainly in association with these, the wealthy inhabitants of Kleva, of, of, a, of a sense of high living of, of cultivated living. To what extent do we get a sense of what daily life would have been like for the residents? Um, well, now that's an interesting question. Getting on to daily life. Um, that's... Uh, the, the, the life of the occupants, well, on the one hand, there's quite a strong kind of craft and an industrial uh, flavour to the late Iron Age. So they're making stuff. And we find, for example, fragments of... Um, molds for casting the the, the, the the discs, the blanks from which their coins are struck. Um, and we have evidence for 
precious metal, so the working of, of uh, producing silver coins, for example, as well as um, uh, bronze coins and, and um, objects of copper alloy. So we found um, items of, 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 of mold, clay, ceramic mold for uh, making horse gear, you know, harness uh, attachments, that kind of thing. So there's a, and, and there's iron making going on, iron working. So that there's, there's that side. Um, and we have to think what else is going on that um, allows these people to import these luxuries. Uh, from the Mediterranean world. And of course, we turned here to insights from classical sources, in particular, the um, historian and geographer Strabo, who's writing round about the time that our big house is being built in, and lived in. And he talks about um, exports from Britain of, of commodities, bulk commodities like corn, cattle, uh, metals, uh, hunting dogs, and slaves. And um, these commodities are often difficult to recognize in the archaeological record. Um, but I think one can imagine a fairly sort of competitive society that's going out. And we can see links uh, from Kaleva going southwestwards down towards um, Devon and Cornwall, as well as links which take us into sort of central and eastern England. So there's a lot of trade going on. And sending things, um, Kaleva as a, as a sort of an entrepot, sending those commodities back to the Roman world. Um, and what we see best in the archaeological record um, are the things which the Iron Age um, leaders were consuming, their, their wine and their, their tablewares. You touched um, there on animal remains. Um, mm. I read somewhere that there was a small dog that had been sacrificed. Um, is that the case? Well, yeah, yes. Um, interesting um, looking at sort of kind of foundation rituals. Um, one of the, the, the most distinctive find associated with the building was um, the burial of, of uh, a, a, a tinier, what people sometimes call a toy dog, um, complete skeleton dog which had died sort of maybe three or four years of age. Um, so it wasn't a babe. It was a, it was a, a, a dwarf breed. Um, and... Um, well, you know, I think you go down the line that it's just a great coincidence that dog happens to die at the time um, the building's constructed, or that you know it's sacrificed as to to ensure the the, the building's um, long life. Um, so, 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 and and the dog itself, of course, is interesting and a sign of 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 the, of the elite because that sort of breed is not um, indigenous to Britain at that time. So, the dog itself may have been an import. Um, imagine dog coming through customs and quarantine and later on age pressure. That's fantastic. Um, talking a bit then about the rest of the of the settlement. I mean, how many houses of this scale were there? Well, here you're, 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 we're kind of going a little bit into conjecture, um, but if one starts off with an assumption that there is some linkage between what we're seeing in the Iron Age and what then emerges in the early Roman period in Kaleva, then we're looking at maybe one or two big houses per um, Roman block, Roman insula of the town. So that you know pushes the number of big houses of the sort of the tribal magnates, the big men of the tribe, to you know, somewhere in the 30s perhaps. Um, and then if you think of the density of 
the smaller sort of post hole uh, iron age structures, um, you're thinking, well, maybe you know, we're getting up somewhere um, towards perhaps a thousand of these, you know, within the area, the enclosed area of the oppidum. I mean, I, I mean, it would take generations of archaeologists to, or very sophisticated geophysical techniques to uh, test that out. But I mean, it's not unreasonable to see some sort of degree of correlation between um, what's happening in the very Iron Age at the beginnings of Clayborne and what then transforms into the Roman town. Mm. And um, what were the other buildings like that were built on a smaller scale to this? How similar were they? Um, well, they're predominantly rectangular. Um, there are some circular buildings um, that are obviously more familiar in a prehistoric Iron Age context, but they're, they're predominantly the rectangular buildings are, are post-built, um, so six, seven metres um, dimension, and circular houses, about, about seven, eight, not, not very big, really, seven metres or so diameter. Um, and um, again, timber is the main mean of, means of construction. And we do have some environmental evidence to suggest that um, thatching was the preferred means of, of roofing these structures. So again, it gives you, gives you that sense of a linking back, if you like, into the prehistoric past of, of, of Britain. How much of a surprise was it that the town was planned to a grid? Um, it was, um, oh, well, yes, it, it, a great surprise. I mean, it, it comes out of, um, again, uh, if you like, a theory, a conjecture that goes back to an excavation in the 1980s, an excavation which really demonstrated that Iron Age Calova survived beneath the Roman. Um, because when the early excavators worked at, at uh, Silchester, they couldn't find any traces of Iron Age occupation. But modern excavation techniques allowed us to see that it was actually, despite generations of Roman building, well-preserved underneath the, the, um, the, the Roman horizons. So, um, you know, from that, um, it, was, it was possible to extrapolate. And that 1980s excavation gave us a kind of hint that there was an organized grid. And it, that was replicated so, okay, we had a hint of it in the 1980s. This project, getting down to the Iron Age levels, has confirmed that there is rectangularity, irregularity of layout within certainly that core 80-acre um, or so enclosure of Kaleva. And that's, that's a very important development, I think. I mean, does that offer us um, clues that other settlements built at the same sort of time may have been constructed along the same lines? Um, yes, potentially. Um, I mean, some of our, we, we don't, I mean, we don't, frankly, we don't really know very much about these early sort of proto-towns, if you like. Um, we know where they are. So Camelodunum is probably the best known example and, and work in the sort of late 1920s, early 1930s, established some knowledge about that. Um, but not enough, I think, to show whether the core settlement there was of a gridded character. Um, St. Albans, Verulamium, Velamio, the, the Celtic town, again, probably for the most part, underlies the Roman. Um, that's what the evidence would suggest, but that needs to be tested out. Canterbury would be another example. So potentially, yes, um, but because um, you know, Clover is not built on now, has allowed this opportunity for long-term, you know, careful investigation, we've been able to show it here. And certainly show the possibility that, so others need to bear that in mind when 
um, digging the deeper levels of, of well, Canterbury or um, Colchester and, and, and St Albans. Do we know when um, the kind of large hall disappeared? Well, that's, that's a, again, a very interesting question. That's something that we... I think the current work will help us understand a bit more the current season. Um, it doesn't look as if it stood for very long, maybe not more than a generation, 20, 30 years, and seems to have been replaced by a, um, as opposed to, I mean, I'm, I'm conjecturing kind of plank-built, at least the side walls of the building plank, but replaced by uh, a timber post rectangular building of um, similar dimensions, but 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 not occupying quite the same footprint. So that's something that we're we're currently exploring um, this summer. What happened to that building? How it um, transformed um, uh, into the you know, years leading up to the Roman conquest? Mm. I mean, you mentioned that this is the first week of this of this project. What else do you yes. hope um, to to find over the ne- over the coming weeks? Oh well, the main objective in Insula Nine is to reveal more of the Iron Age and complete the excavation of the earliest, the overlying earliest Roman occupation. So um, we're looking to maybe have uh, exposed and, and, and understood the plan layout and, and occupation of getting on towards, well, certainly 2,000 square meters of the town, maybe a bit more by the end of this summer. Um, so there's, there's an awful lot to play for. And, and already you know, we're beginning to get some, some well, we've really only just got going, but some, some, some nice finds coming up, Iron Age um, occupation, um, you know, some nice um, Iron Age coins coming up, um, more of these imports from the Roman world, from, from, from northern France, from the Mediterranean. So, yeah, so going for the Iron Age is, is we, as we come to the end of the overall town life project as a whole that's that's our our main goal that was michael fulford to read more about the project don't miss the new story in our august issue on sale now and that's almost all for this week next time we'll have a special report from history live english heritage's festival of history taking place at calmarsh hall in northamptonshire from the 20th to the 21st of july Tickets are still available and the BBC History magazine team will have a stand at the event. So do come over and say hello. And don't forget that we'd love to hear from you. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. We're also, of course, on Twitter at History Extra and on facebook.com slash History Extra. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.